Hello and welcome. My name is Assad. My name is Jamie. We're two surgical trainees in the north of England, and this is the podcast that aims to dissect, to probe, to anatomize, and analyze what it is to be a surgical trainee. Welcome to It's Always Sunny in Surgery. So today we're talking about an uh, important topic of bullying, undermining and harassment. And we have a very special guest with us, Mr. David Riding, who's a consultant vascular surgeon based in Manchester, who's been heavily involved in both campaigning and researching on this topic. Very warm welcome to you, Mr. Riding. I suppose we could probably just start by asking you to explain how you became involved, how you got interested in this topic and sort of some of the things that you've done so far. Well, yeah, thanks for the invitation, first of all. You can call me Dave as well. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm sorry for this. So, yeah, it, it started, I think it was 20, 2016, something like that. So there was a, a group of us on the trainees committee at the, the Edinburgh College who were asked by the then president, uh, Mike Lavelle-Jones, to look into this a bit more. The, the kind of source data was a, a survey that the college had done um, of all its members and fellows, and not just trainees, but, you know, everybody including consultants, and there was about a third of consultants and, and trainees uh, who reported that they'd either been bullied, and there was about a third who reported that they'd observed bullying, and there was only a third who said they would have confidence in knowing how to report it, how to deal with it in their own departments. So it's quite a stark figure, really, if you think about the number of surgeons who were members of the college, it's quite a considerable number. So for a third of them to have experienced it and to have little confidence in the reporting, it clearly meant there was a problem there that needed exploring. But we all palpably feel that we know certain characters who are particularly intimidating. And we know people who've had a rough time at the hands of certain departments. Like we, we all know these stories. We, we all hear them because we rotate around so often. Um, so in a sense, the data wasn't really telling us anything we didn't know already. I guess it just kind of focused minds um, that we had to do something about it. Um, so that's the kind of background context. And then we initially thought it'd be quite a short project, but here we are, you know, years down the line, still learning about it, still trying to sort things out um, because that's really how long it takes to change the culture in, in organisations. Dave, I'll be honest. Like when I, first time I met you, I was a little bit scared of you because like you're captain of the ship, you know, when you were Red on call, I had control of stuff and I was like, oh, a wee little SHO thinking, up and you know, a better, better stay on his good side, and it's it's got now to do with with how you carry yourself. Or you're not an intimidating person, other than the fact that you are a consummate professional. But I can't imagine you have ever been subject to bullying. But have you? Well, thanks for the <laughs> thanks for the review. First of all, I guess uh, as a side point, this highlights one of the issues that the way you conduct yourself sometimes has inadvertent consequences. Because obviously, I would, would never set out to to be intimidated, but I guess as a quite dour um, Lancastrian person, you know that that's a, perhaps an occupational hazard. I think I am probably the least one of the least likely people to experience it, and that's supported in some of the data that we 
uh, unearthing our systematic review. Because what that showed is that if you're from an ethnic minority or if you're female or if you're from another group that has a protected characteristic, then you're much more likely to experience this kind of behaviour. So obviously, as a, I'm, I'm from the Northwest. I work in the Northwest. I'm a white guy. I'm probably not the person who's most likely to be at risk of this kind of behaviour. But what I had seen was that I could observe it in the departments that I've worked in, um, particularly in the overseas graduates who came across who were kind of used to fill slots on the rotor. And I felt personally they were treated quite badly on occasion. And also there were people who dropped out of surgery because they didn't get on with some of the personalities there. And some of those people were superb and would have been brilliant consultants. I've certainly felt undermined through my training. And the other thing is I've seen the effect it has on patient care. It's a patient safety issue. And that's the, that's the key to the whole thing, really. You, if you've witnessed it, did you ever think, well, I can say something? Or did you think, you know what, if this guy or, or girl or lady or whatever is on the warpath, I, I need to pick my battles here. I shouldn't go tackling them head on because it's only going to create more of a drama. I guess I felt the same way that a lot of people feel, which, which is you're there for six months, uh, perhaps a year. You've got certain things you need to achieve that uh, need to be signed off. Actually, that's a very, very short amount of time. And so to be to have the confidence in yourself to put your head above the parapet, but also the confidence that it will be taken seriously or people raising issues with the TPD. And I think that is what prevents a lot of people from putting their head above the parapet because we are a transient workforce. And taking the path of least resistance when you've got your surgical skills to acquire, you might have exams. And as I've said at the beginning with the data, there's very little confidence in hospitals reporting systems to back you up if you do do that. So really the odds are stacked against anyone who experiences or observes this behaviour because it's easier just to keep your head down, suck it up and get on to the next placement. And and that's what people tend to do. Um, But the problem is that the individuals who are responsible for that oppressive behaviour don't rotate. They stay where they are. And the people and the patients under, under their uh, you know their care or, or their training training responsibility the ones who suffer uh, you mentioned earlier um, about the difference between bullying and undermining it would be good to get you to explain what these words actually mean bullying undermining harassment and what what is the difference between the three things yeah so I guess um, harassment is the one to talk about first because that is that that has like, actually is a criminal offense so if you discriminate against someone on the grounds of a protected characteristic, which uh, are listed in law, um, then you can be held criminally liable for that. So I guess the key thing with bullying and undermining is that they're not illegal in themselves. I guess undermining is the one to take on first because that that is essentially behaviour that undermines someone's confidence and stops them being effective at, at what they do. Whereas I guess bullying is more aggressive and is more about victimisation and direct oppressive behaviour. The key uh, discriminator between bullying and undermining and, and harassment is that only the latter has a kind of well-established legal recourse. Really. You mentioned protected characteristics. Are they like sex, age? Yeah, religion, gender, clearly marked down in law that, you, you, you know, if you victimise someone on that basis, then there is a, you know, there is a, a charge of harassment that can be made. Uh, whereas bullying, it's more insidious, I guess, for most people. Um, so it can be physical and verbal intimidation, um, 
but it can be more subtle than that. Is it fair to say that bullying is about the leveraging of power? So I, I think you can interpret it that way, but the only thing I'd be cautious of is that things can work against the hierarchical uh, framework. So by that, I mean that there have been lots of instances where trainees have bullied consultants. Um, so it doesn't necessarily follow that it, it mirrors the um, the medical hierarchy. Um, I think the departments with very rigid, stark hierarchies probably not ideal. I think that probably creates a, uh, an environment where bullying could potentially happen. So, yeah, I don't think you can say it's unidirectional. You mentioned earlier that these things, these kind of behaviours not only affect the individual who's who's a victim of them, but has a knock-on effect on the patients and uh, the wider team. Um, through your research and things, how, have you found what is the knock-on effect of um, of bullying and, and undermining? When we started this work, we got quite a lot of kickback from quite a lot of people. And I think you can understand that because no one wants to see themselves in this light as a profession. You know, we were accused of being snowflakes. You know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen and this is surgery, it's not flower arranging. What we always came back to is that if you had a drug or if you had a procedure that was causing as much damage to patient care as this kind of behavior was, then it would be off the market and we wouldn't be using it and no consultant would be happy to. To provide evidence for that is difficult because essentially we're used to dealing with quantitative data as surgeons in general, but obviously all this stuff is qualitative. And so we had to bring stories to the table. So one of the things I'd seen quite a lot of was that some of my registrar colleagues were too intimidated to bring bad news to the consultant. So if there's a particular complication on the ward or patient needs to go back to theatre, or there was a you know a last minute cancellation, it just it impeded the the lines of communication because people were too scared to go and speak to a particular consultant. So that on on the very basic level, that that interruption in the flow of information in a team is a problem. There are more egregious examples. So if you look at things like mid-staffs, um, if you look at things like Morgan Bay obstetric care, if you look at uh, Ian Patterson, the breast surgeon, there's always an undercurrent of bullying and intimidation that goes underneath it because that kind of behaviour over years, it facilitates an environment where people feel literally too scared to speak up. And that's when you start to get clinical negligence cases. And if you look through some of the the GMC fitness to practice hearing outcomes. It's the clinical problems that get picked up. And then when people investigate it properly, they realize that there's there's a culture of bullying and intimidation and cover-ups that underlies it all and allows it to flourish. It's too late for the patients that have been harmed. So we had to kind of use that as a convincing argument. And, and it is difficult to refute that. You said you got a bit of backlash, or a lot of backlash when you, when you um, first started talking about who was that backlash from mainly so i guess it was it was tended to be from more senior colleagues i would Mm. say but again i I think it was largely from people like me so white uh, men who were quite senior when they were trainees back in the day they probably did experience that kind of thing but it was entirely part of the culture and they were basically telling us that there wasn't any bullying even now, people don't like to think of themselves as part of a culture that is characterized by this kind of behavior. But equally, we all know that it happens. And some people do kind of think that it is character building. 
And so it's a strange kind of paradox where people say, on one hand, well, we all have to under, kind of experience this behavior, so why shouldn't you? But on the other hand, they tell you that it doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's a strange, uh, a strange thing. What do you say to people in that echo chamber when they're like, oh, it's just character building, it's just forming, it's making you a better person, it did me no harm. How can you kind of cut through that bullshit? The analogy I always use is a bit like diff- dealing with a difficult patient. You just have to kind of keep your wits about you, stay calm. And there are some there are some things that people cannot really refute. So people can tell you they've never been bullied. That's fine. They may never have been bullied. But can they really say that someone else hasn't? It's impossible to do that because one of the definitions of bullying that it, it it's how the the victim perceives that they've been treated. It's not necessarily that the bullying has done the behaviour. It's more about how the person feels about it. Because either way, if there has been intent to cause harm and to bully, that's a problem. If the person hasn't intended to cause harm, but the person still feels victimised, then that's still a problem. So it's about how the person feels about it. Do you think it's because the lack of diversity kind of makes it like an echo chamber? If you're amongst friends and you're amongst like-minded people and someone does a behaviour that becomes permissible and then widespread, you haven't got any externality from it. You haven't got someone saying, well, actually, I find that offensive and I don't think that's appropriate. Is that is that where you think diversity ties into this? Or just the idea that a workforce should represent the population it's designed to serve? Well, I think the workforce should reflect the the population it serves, um, and there's no reason why it shouldn't. Uh, I guess that's the first thing to say. But I, I think you've also got to look at the people who are being put off following a surgical career. And I've seen lots of very, very good people, um, particularly women who've abandoned their surgical career because of the macho culture. And I think that I do genuinely think that is, is changing. But it, it's about having role models as well. You know, if if you're starting out as an ST1 um, and the consultants that you're working for don't resemble you in any way, can they really offer you a kind of, you know, sympathetic uh, ear when things aren't going well? Because we all have moments where things don't go well in our training um, and you need someone just to put an arm around you and, and say, you know what, I've been there, I understand how you feel, this is how I got through it. It's very important for, for example, if you're uh, a female trainee who is maybe struggling with childcare issues and um, things like that, it's much more effective if you have a mentor who maybe could relate to that situation rather than, say, a man who doesn't have kids. It also sort of ties into this topic where if you have your seniors who can relate um, or perhaps empathise better with your situation, um, they're less likely to be so harsh on you when things don't go smoothly you also mentioned earlier that a third of trainees didn't know how to sort of escalate yeah i mean i think it's really difficult so every nhs trust has a a bullying policy um so they have to have that and they all have them and obviously we've already talked about the fact there's relatively low confidence in in those procedures and obviously to a to a certain extent you're in a vulnerable position as a trainee I come back to that analogy of a difficult patient. So if you've got a difficult patient, either because they're a difficult personality or because their particular uh, healthcare needs are complex, what would you do? You would make sure your documentation was really good. 
So we advise people to make contemporaneous notes of things that have happened to them. You would get a second opinion. So you can speak to someone, either a colleague in the department who you trust or other colleagues around the region. Because just as a side issue, I mean, we're kind of hermetically sealed in our medical uh, kind of work environment. And a lot of the time we forget that in lots of other workplaces, this kind of stuff just is not tolerated at all. But ultimately, there is a chain of command in the educational structures under which we work. So your clinical supervisor, your educational supervisor, your TPD. Now, they may all be working in the same department as you, and they may even be part of the problem. And you would hope now in 2023 that the people who are getting those jobs as TPD educational supervisors will have the knowledge and the experience to guide you through a situation like that. Um, and it might just be a case that you need some reassurance. I need to be put with another supervisor. You know, there are often solutions, but obviously you need someone senior in a position of authority who can help you through that. Um, and ultimately, if you're not getting anywhere with even at TPD level, then you take it to the, the School of Surgery. And you can even take it outside if you really want to. You can take it to the CQC. But yeah, I can't pretend it's an easy thing to do. Um, it obviously isn't. But I think the structures that are in place now are probably as good as they've ever been, albeit they could be improved significantly. I think it's hard as trainees because you think like sometimes you get told, well, the National Training Survey is anonymous. Then if you fill out some like legitimate concerns, the GMC just goes, oi, deanery, a trainee in this hospital has flagged up major concerns. And it takes about three seconds for someone to triangulate exactly who you are. And then you just think, you know, well, I'm in the shit now, you know, as well, I may as well keep my mouth shut. Yeah, no, I think that's a problem. I guess what, what we're aiming for is that you have a TPD and clinical supervisors and education leads in the hospitals that have really earned the right to hold those positions. And so they should be the trainees advocate and they should be the people who are not assuming that it's nonsense, but are actually going to take it seriously. And I think in the past that hasn't necessarily always been the case. The other thing to say is that it's highly unlikely that you're going to be the sole person. And again, that comes down to speaking to people. If you find yourself in that position, just find someone you can trust and to speak to them because it may be that this is a common problem. And we, we know that uh, departments have had trainees taken off them in the past because of this kind of thing. And again, I'm not sure that would have happened 20 years ago. Dave, I have to confess, I had uh, a dream about you and some other people in which I was actually yeah. bullying you. Um, this is going to sound really bonkers, but it's a true, true story. Um, <laughs> I put my dreams down, I get these really, really vivid ones. And essentially what it boils down to is that I went to a house party and my wife's from Chalton. She lives off, um, her parents live off, you know, opposite the Morrisons. Oh, yeah, that's where I live. Do you? It's getting very weird now. No way. Okay, right. Well, my wife and I went to a house party, and there was you and Chris, and my wife were on one team, and then there was me. And do you remember James Forsyth? We're all from Presswich. So it was like Team Chalton versus Presswich Massive. Obviously, you and my wife, and then um, press this massive one, and then uh, we were like bullying you. Into, um, and it's funny how this come full circle because now we're here talking about it. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, in my subconscious, I am a bully. I, I don't know whether I'm pleased or frightened that I'm appearing in your dreams, but uh, <laughs> I'm taking notes of it anyway. Put it that way. <laughs> I think we should have a grand round where we sit you down with a psychoanalyst or something and just go. <laughs> 
they, they, they do get weird. Like I've got, I've, I've wrote, I write them all down because if I wake up and then um, I've committed to paper quick, then I retain it and I just have it as a little diary. And I thought, oh, I'll mention it because it's bullying related. Okay, no, that's good. I think <laughs> <laughs> coming back from bullying, what mm. what was it like for you? And I, I suppose it goes back to the fact that you say you know you're a white male. You're the archetypal surgical trainee. Yeah. I was intimidated by you only because I thought, like I said at the beginning, you know your shit, you know, you know what you're doing. So how was it like in undermined when you're the A, one type of demographic who shouldn't experience it, but B, pretty confident that you know what you're doing? So I'll give you an, an example that was uh, probably the, the most, the example I think of most is that I've been through a placement and done about four or five months of it. And everything had apparently been going fine. And then at my ARCP, there were a couple of people on there who completely put the boot in, totally out of the blue. And these are people I work with, you know, every day pretty much. Uh, and so I didn't see it coming at all. And it, it completely took the wind out of my sails. And I uh, I found it really difficult to, to manage. And I was quite angry about it. And there were some things on there that I, I felt like I wanted to contest that they said. But it, it caused me a lot of difficulty and it also saps my confidence because no one likes to read those kind of things about yourself. And, and when that happens over and over again, and it kind of wears you away, I guess. And, that, and that's where the undermining thing comes in, really, because I've seen it with some people where they lose confidence because these kind of things happen often. We, we have to be confident to pick up a very sharp scalpel and make an incision in a patient. And if you don't have confidence as a a surgical trainee, it's very hard to progress. Do you think it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy where someone keeps going, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, and then you start thinking, oh, hang on, am I good enough? So my personal view about surgeons is that there's a kind of disconnect um, that may actually fuel all this behaviour in the first place. So if you think about all the kind of fictional portrayals of surgeons, whether it's on TV or um, literature or films or whatever, um, they're always kind of autocratic, quite kind of strong type A personalities. Um, you know, they're maverick, but they get results. Uh, they kind of, you know, do the thing that is least intuitive, but it still pays off. You know, and in reality, that is the last person you want doing your operation if you're a patient. <laughs> but yeah. nonetheless, that, that is um, that is the the image that a lot of fictional surgeons uh, are portrayed as having. But actually, most of us, you know, pretty normal people, not particularly skilled, may I say. So this kind of myth that people are born with these skills and they're, you know, oh, they're an incredible operator. Um, and you can train pretty average people like myself to do it as long as you have the right training. But actually, most of us are normal people doing a job that we've worked very hard for and developed a lot of skills for. Um and that's the same as a lot of other jobs. It's a surgeon's personality, isn't it? But I think when we talked about this with other people as well, they kind of alluded to this this thing that we we all um, sort of know that bullying and undermining happen, but we're never ready to admit that we're ever the perpetrator, even to you know a small amount. There have been times where I've been stressed and I've maybe spoken to people slightly rudely or abruptly. You know, I wouldn't class myself as a bully, but I'm guilty of sometimes not treating everyone with the same courtesy and respect that I would expect from them. How do you think 
you navigate that as a trainee, what would you suggest then as, as, to me as, a, as someone who's sort of now entering a higher specialty training? How can I um, sort of avoid falling into the trap of becoming um, someone who, who is difficult to work with? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a really good question. Um, and interestingly, when we launched the college website that had all these resources, the button that cl- got clicked on the most was the one that was entitled, Am I a Bully? Hmm. Uh, so there's obviously a lot of people who share your concerns about, you know, that there, there are obviously like the cartoon bullies who throw things around theatre and shout and scream at everyone. But actually they're probably increasingly rare, I would I would suggest. And palpably things feel like they've changed since I was a, you know, a third-year medical student a million years ago. But I think it's the impact of our behaviour on others in the ways that you suggest. So um, I think you can judge a lot from how confident trainees are by the way they speak to people on the phone when they're being referred to patient. Mm-hmm. So some people will just throw up the wall, be very defensive, ask a million questions, um, make it very difficult for the person referring the problem. But the patient still needs your input as an expert. And I think sometimes trainees forget that, uh, particularly when they're kind of further on through the training program and it's a long time since they worked in A&E and had to refer patients from different specialties. I think what it comes down to is empathy, really. We don't really talk about empathy in medicine, but there's lots of evidence that it, it is its absence is a problem. Uh, so again, going back to the Francis report into mid-staff, so he, he wrote that there was a clear lack of empathy in the departments that he was investigating. If you look at, uh, there's a phenomenon called empathy decline. It's quite stark in medicine uh, for obvious reasons. So there's pretty good evidence that as you progress through medical school <clears throat> and as you go from being a preclinical to a clinical student, the more contact you have with patients, the more your empathy declines, which is quite a worrying phenomenon considering we're supposed to be caring for people. <laughs> and that empathy that, or that ability to empathise at, at at, under um, most at risk when you move up a level. So if you go from being a medical student to a foundation doctor, if you go from being a core trainee to a higher trainee, if you go from being um, a registrar to a consultant, these are the times when your ability to empathise is most at risk. And the analogy I use is a bit like the Monroe Kelly doctrine. So there's only so much space for so much stuff in your brain. And when you move up a level, you're immediately shunted out of your comfort zone. And by the time you get to STA, you've got your exam in your back pocket, so you're feeling pretty pleased with yourself. Um, your CCT looks like it's going to be going fine. You're totally in your comfort zone because you're just doing the registrar on calls that you've done a million times before. And then all of a sudden, you're the consultant. And so your potential stress levels increase, your level of responsibility increases. And we know from the qualitative studies that people have done, the empathy is the stuff that gets squeezed out down the spinal canal. Um, because there isn't enough space for it with all the increased clinical responsibilities and, and all the other new things you have to learn when you step up a level. Um, but we don't make any effort to to train people how to mitigate this. We don't really train people how to be empathic, and you can train people how to be empathic. So it has a massive influence on how we conduct ourselves as a profession, but we, we kind of ignore it um, in a way that we don't ignore can you hold a pair of scissors properly? The people we want to recruit and want to become surgeons and are people who understand the importance of empathy, who are naturally empathic, 
And you know what? We can probably train those people to use a pair of scissors and put some stitches in. But I think it is a skill set you can acquire. And it's also something that people have within them. And I think probably if we selected people on that basis rather than how many audits have they done, it, it might be a more useful way of selecting people. It's like you say, empathy is the thing that probably requires a lot of time and patience and care. And when you're under the cosh and you've got finite time, finite patience because you've got things to do and you know, the care that you provide to people has to be distributed amongst increasing numbers, then I think it's probably one of the things that you have to make concessions for. But fair point, you know, like surgical skill, I think we put a lot of emphasis on surgical skill. And like none of these are inherent skills. You don't sort of do your own cesarean, you know, someone doesn't hand you a scalpel and go cut yourself out of the womb and ligate your own umbilical cord. You just, you, you learn to pick it up. And if you put the hours in, you'll get it. Um, and then even other courses like knots, I don't think knots particularly teaches this. It teaches you the situational environmental factors for dealing with colleagues uh, a little bit better, but it assumes that perhaps you as, I don't want to sound grandiose, but the top of the surgical pyramid, how you will interact with others rather than what we as trainees can do to kind of offset the like you're saying the lack of empathy that you have yeah no i i totally agree um i think it's a difficult one because it's one of those things that's hard to measure so you can't sit someone down in a five minute interview station and, and quickly assess their empathy levels in the same way that you can assess them doing some interrupted sutures yeah um, four points for a buffering a box of tissues there's always a risk that it just becomes performative rather than yeah. genuine but I think the the consultants that I look up to, that I aspire to be like, um, which I'm still trying to get to grips with, is being able to triage those things during a ward round and, and make sure that everyone's you know been managed within the context of the time that you have. We've got you know 60 vascular patients on the ward, and you cannot give each one of those patients the same you know time and, and assessments as. You know, if they've come in overnight in A&E, you're going to be spending 15, 20 minutes with them. And it, it, it fundamentally comes back to uh, how, if it was your own mum and dad there, you know, how would you want them to be treated? Um, it, it's not really much more complicated than that. So when I'm consoled of the week, I seem to spend a huge amount of my time on the phone to relatives uh, because they can tell that I genuinely care about their relative and that they may not like the outcome you know, for example, an amputation, but they can at least understand that you're doing it for the what you think are the right reasons and that, you know, that they'll, they'll often buy into that as the most appropriate management. And it comes down to empathy. You know, if you were sat at home and your dad was in hospital with a critical limb, you wake up in the morning and he's had an amputation, yeah. no one told you about it. It's not unreasonable for you to be upset, is it? I think empathy is instinctive. But I don't think it's something that we can't train people on, but unfortunately we don't train people on it at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting you picked up. I've I sort of come to the realization, and you, you you mentioned something that um I think sort of illustrates the issue of um uh em- empathy and and how it ties into bullying, which is when you're receiving referrals from ED, because that is especially when it's on the phone and it becomes almost slightly anonymized. I think um that is a part of the job where a lot of bullying does occur. And I think one of the things I found really difficult when I started, you know, doing on calls and 
and taking referrals, especially when you're busy and you're getting a referral that maybe is slightly dodgy, is be, having the skill to kind of calm yourself and still be polite and respectful to the person uh, referring you and also trying to get the information necessary to to uh, understand why it is they're actually referring you the patient. And I found as I've sort of progressed through core training, I have become a lot nicer on the phone because I realize, well, I think because I'm more confident being able to uh, sort of empathize with people and, and not fall into the trap of um, bullying, undermining harassment is kind of a skill that you have to develop. And I think you're right. It can be trained with your the work that you did with the Royal College, the campaign that they ran, let's remove it. What kind of effect did you see that have on the culture of the profession in general what outcomes did you you think have come from that campaign so far yeah it's um it's a really difficult one to answer that because i think again as surgeons we're in the mindset that what you'd like to see is that you've halved the number of people who are reporting bullying um because that instinctively feels like that's what should be a legitimate outcome for something like that it's actually really hard to put numbers on it. And the success of a campaign like that might be that the number of people reporting it goes up. So what I would say is that at least we're talking about it now. So for the college to come out and say we have a problem in our profession, I think is a big thing, but we've never talked about before. Equally, there are a large number of people who've been damaged by this kind of behaviour, whether it's sexual harassment or... Um, other forms of harassment or bullying and undermining. I think what we're trying to do is accelerate culture change. The surgical culture has changed a lot since I first started. And I feel like some of that would have happened anyway as the the kind of makeup of the workforce changes, um, particularly with more women being in in surgery and better accessibility for, for other people as well. So it's hard to know whether we made any difference whatsoever, to be brutally honest. But at least we're talking about it. At least if people are having a rough time, they can at least see that the educational leaders for surgery in the country are saying it's a problem and that they're on their side and they're offering resources. And I think when you're talking about accelerating culture change, that's always important. That visibility that we accept this is a problem. Just talking about it as an issue is a starting point for people to feel more comfortable but yeah, I, I totally accept that there's no kind of easy outcome measure that you can, you know, you can mark down as success. But that, that's mm-hmm. how we've kind of come to view it, really. I guess um, I don't know if you've done any sort of follow up surveys, but I would kind of expect it, the proportion of people to say that they have either been bullied or witnessed it may go up as people become more aware um, of what bullying is for a start, and um, you know they're more likely to. S- to maybe feel more comfortable in answering that question on a survey. Um, so, yeah, I think I think I think you're right. It may not necessarily. Um, it's difficult to prove whether um, bullying is. But I think uh, one of the things as you mentioned is that as as you become more aware of what bullying is and the effect it has on your colleagues and your patients, you're more likely to recognise it in yourself as well. Um, so I think like it, it all comes back down to a little bit of externality. Like I've got some friends who are in, I went to school with them in the forces and a bunch of them went off and like joined the Marines. 
So they went on like back-to-back tours. They went to Iraq, they went to Afghanistan, they went to Iraq, Iraq again, Afghanistan some more. And they did like year on year on year on year on deployments. And they saw some, as you can imagine, some truly horrific things. And they, one of them casually let slip sort of psychological morbidity from being in that environment uh, meant that he slept with a knife under the pillow and he came really close to sort of doing something he regretted. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, just, I, just, I sleep with a knife under the pillow and I don't trust myself if I'm a little bit drunk. And all the other people in that circle are like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I've got my commando dagger under the pillow. And I was like, what the F are you talking about? What do you mean you sleep with a knife under your pillow? It's like, oh, yeah, we all do it. And essentially, because they're all in the same echo chamber, that they've all got, they don't realize they've all got PTSD because all they communicate with are other Marines because they've all picked up some degree of psychological trauma that then they just perpetuate the cycle. And if you only ever talk to other people in the same world, that's the only view that you get. And it's only when they mentioned it to me, I was like, that's, ask, ask anyone on the street, you sleep with a knife under your pillow. The answer will be no. And I think that's what you need. You need externality. And perhaps making cases like this out in the press means that finally the profession is kind of getting that, you know, outward eyes looking in going, it's not on this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's happened in other professions as well. So if you look at things like um, Hollywood or high-level sports, you know, things where there is a lot of money at stake and a lot of other things at stake, like professional integrity and all the rest of it, you end up with a lot of damaged people, whether it's patients, uh, people who contacted the police and been unsuccessful in getting things sorted out, people who were at the start of their music career or their film career. Anything where there's high stakes, high pressure, you always get people responding, unfortunately, negatively and threatening the well-being of the people that they work with. The police in London are never going to be the same again. Um you know, same in, in film and music and TV and all the rest of it with the amount of bullying that goes on that's been reported. Same in sports, you know, the cycling teams, gymnastics, all the rest of it. it, it it's people's inability to respond positively to being put under pressure. I was on call the other day and I had some guy with like abdo pain, a seven centimeter aneurysm. And I ha- we have like a a junior clinical fellow who is new and sort of just finding her feet and stuff. And she was ringing me about a few different things, some really, really benign things on the ward, like post-op patient, can they go home? And I really, really had to moderate myself. Don't ruin this girl's life, right? She just wants to do surgery. She's keen and she's eager, right? She's a bright, energetic, young thing. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I was like, Sue, that's not her but, um, I'm just with a patient with a very large aneurysm with it. Do I need to uh, respond to this now? Can you just send me some messages later? And like that for me was, I don't even know what happened to the patient, but I felt quite good about myself that I didn't just go like acker and tear this girl's head off for like, how dare you ring me? Blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, take a, take a breath, take a pause. I'm with some guy, got a problem. Can you just hang on? Send me a message. Take five. I'll get back to you. It does. It does take extra effort to be not a bully, but I think the rewards are worth it. I think that's absolutely true. And, and the other thing is, you you know, occasionally you have uh, bump into people who say, you know, oh, I, I did um, an appendix with you at Stepping Hill in like 2010 or something, and I, I've I've got no memory of any of it whatsoever. 
Um, and they're like, oh, you let me uh, put the snare on and then you let me bag it up and put the ports in or whatever. Um, and so it's nice to be reminded of those things. But the other thing I always think of is if you were a real dick to someone, they're probably going to remember that for a lot longer. Um, and do you really want to be the person who's, you know, who's got that kind of uh, reputation or I suspect most of us don't really want that. It's not, it's like it's a team game, isn't it? You don't want to be Billy No Mates when you're, you know, up the creek without a paddle and you've got a problem that you need someone else to fix. And then they don't really want to play ball because you've left a lasting negative impression on them. Yeah. I mean, it may come in. I think we've kind of said it all, haven't we? Don't be a jerk. Take your message. That is real. The cycle. That is real number one. Yeah. Don't, just don't be a dick. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Thank mm-hmm. you.